So it's June 17th. It's um, both the Aposite Day and uh, Saturday. It's a significant day for us um, in remembering our teacher, our teacher's teacher, Lumpur Cha. And uh, Lumpur Cha was born on June 17th in 1918, which would make him 105 years old today if he was alive. And as far as I know, uh, no one in this room met Lumpur Cha. He died in 1992, and 1982 is when he stopped teaching because uh, he became ill. He had a, a stroke or a number of uh, smaller strokes and uh, couldn't speak so well. And then his physical health started failing from that point on. So we get to remember Lumpur Cha through uh, our teacher, Lumpur Pasno, who lived with him, and other uh, elder teachers who also lived with him. And luckily, uh, before he died, and several years before he died, um, many talks of his were recorded, so many of you have, have read some of these talks. Um, and and uh, not all of them, but um, what is said to be like the, the best of his talks were um, translated into English, and those are in the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah. And then we have his biography. So a fair amount to go on um, compared to his teacher, uh, Ajahn Mun, who I think only had one one um, sort of poem of his that, that was written down, and then um, a couple of talks that were also written down by a, a student or two. So yeah, we're very lucky to have been able to have secondhand accounts from our our senior elders, but also the, all of the teachings that were recorded by him. So it's quite a, been a very helpful and um, meaningful legacy that Lumpur Cha has, has left for us. And the, um, how we live in this, in this monastery and um, how we act, how we speak, a lot of it is, is from uh, the teachings of Lumpur Cha, how he formed his communities, what he thought was important, and uh, what he transmitted to so many of his students. And what's fascinating about his life, and um, a little bit different, is that even after his death, um, the, the group of students that he had continued to grow and, and multiply and moved out from Thailand um, while he was alive a little bit to the west, to, to England, 
and then and then from there to Europe and uh, the rest of Europe and um, the Americas, Australia, New Zealand, on it went. Now there's a monastery in, in Brazil um, and uh, in the far north in Norway. And so it's quite, yeah, it's quite a beautiful legacy that we've, we've had. And, and so the fact that all of us are sitting in this room is, is due to Lumpur Cha. So there can be a lot of gratitude towards him and the life he led. So I've, I've been thinking just a bit about recently, essentially his, his teachings come down to to one essential thing, and that's what's the most important thing that one can do with a human life. And so Lumpur Cha lived that, and he, he really tried to understand the, the Buddha Dhamma, the Buddha's teachings, and he put his life on the line for that. And when he had learned what, what he needed to learn, uh, and I think he was continuing to learn. He then became a teacher to so many, to so many students. So one of the one of the things, the aspects I've been reflecting on, um, with Lumbar Cha and <coughs> uh, and also just this recent death that we uh, experienced uh, um, from our, one of our neighbors down the street is just that that sense of really what's important in life and. Just knowing that we were all going to face death, and how to how do we live life in a beautiful way that that doesn't become a sort of depressing thought or a fearful thought? And in fact, I would say that is the the main reason uh, I became a monk was to deal with that very very question. So we were uh, on alms round today and we went to uh, Daniel Fry's parents' house, um, Luke and Emily, um, who I've gotten to know um, much better over uh, the last six weeks since Daniel passed. And we were over there and, and uh, we had a, a lovely visit with Daniel's mom, Emily, and her mother, Elizabeth, and, um, and then uh, Emily's sister, uh, Amy. And uh, when we met with them, it was uh, over in the dining hall to discuss a book that Elizabeth had written with a couple of other um, women in Thailand. And 
just to tell you, Elizabeth is 97, I think, 96, 97. And so she, her, her memory is mostly intact, long-term memory. Um, and yeah, it's pretty amazing to, to be around her. And the book that she wrote is called The, the Ten Lives of the Buddha. So it, it documents, she was living in Thailand at the time and she really wanted to do some research around this. So she documented um, the, the, the life stories of, uh, that, that were the, the last ten lives of the Buddha. And these are very much um, brought up in Thai culture and sometimes acted out. And um, Anyway, Elizabeth was there today and so she talked to us that one day and then she was there today when Ajahn Tipanyo and I went over and we were talking and she was she was just asking questions about our, even though she'd lived in Thailand for seven years um, and, and been around monks for quite a while and, and uh, her family, her, her daughters and, and sons had spent seven years in Thailand as well. So they were quite used to seeing um, monastics, monks. But today she was just sitting there listening to us and we were talking about Daniel and she just said out of the blue, um, while we were talking to Emily, you know, do you, do you contemplate death? And I wish that we had spoken to her right, right there. It wasn't, it was, uh, it wasn't, quite, it just didn't feel, uh, it wasn't quite coming up to, to talk about her, but we said, yes, we do. And I pointed to Ajahn Titapanyo and, and said that uh, one of Ajahn's tendencies is to um, have the word maranang on different things that he owns. And maranang is the word for death in Pali. Um, and you can hear that it's related to mara. Uh, mara is the sort of, um, sort of the, he's sort of a, the trickster character in, in, um, in the suttas and, and he's always trying to incline um, human beings toward greed, hatred, and delusion, and uh, tempt them. He's a tempter. Uh, sort of like the, the, the one who's encouraging samsara to just keep going around and around for beings to be reborn again and again. And so that, you know, that question is, is very important and uh, it's something that, that all of us, I think, can, can really try to use in our lives, like how to contemplate death, how to bring it up for ourselves so that it doesn't, as I said before, it doesn't have a meaning of um, fear or dread, or if it does, then, then we work with that. That becomes something that um, we work with so that when death comes, whenever that is, and it could be, you know, it could be anybody in this room, uh, just tonight, we just don't know. Surely Daniel wasn't prepared, he, he had choked on some food and, and died, he was 40 years old. So that, that is, I think, something that uh, is so relevant and so helpful to, to contemplate because for me, the goal of practice is really um, to be able to die well 
and, and what that means for me is to, to not fear death. And to really essentially not only not fear it, but to be absolutely okay with the fact that I'm going to die. That it's not, it's not something that has to be dreary or dreadful um, or, or even negative. One of the uh, beautiful things that um, Lumpur Sumedho has said, uh, who is Lumpur Cha's first uh, foreign student, foreign to Thailand. Lumpur Sumedho was uh, American, and I think he's 80, 88 now. Um, and he, he said even like about... 12 years ago, I think, he wrote a, a note. He was on retreat for a year, and he said that he's very much looking forward to his death. And that was quite amazing to hear. You know, what, is that, what does that mean, to look forward? And he, he, said it's, he said he's looking forward to the learning experience that it will teach him, because it's, it's not something that he um, has ever experienced before, um, or at least that he can, re he can remember. Um, you know, he'll, he, when he talks about past lives, he, he says that uh, he doesn't remember his own past lives, but it doesn't matter to him because they're just memories and they're insubstantial. So in this life, he, he doesn't have that. He doesn't say he, he has that experience to call on from his, from his past lives, but, or at least that's what he had said uh, years ago. But this is what, this is the interesting aspect is like, how can we, how could we even think about that for ourselves? To look forward to death as an interesting experience, something that can teach us about our understanding of Dhamma. And so for a lot of us, this, this can feel uncomfortable. I, I think the other day, um, we were talking about um, one of the monastic's family members and who's, who's dealing with cancer and the, the, it's not looking good. There's no real prognosis around the timing, but immediately I, I, I was bringing up to myself, oh yeah, what, you know, that could, that could be happening right now within my own body. You know, this, this very body, it's not, it's not that uh, just because I'm not, feeling it, that it's not already in there. I think a statistic I read once that a cell, um, each six seconds, I believe, uh, a cell um, uh, mutates. And for 99.99% you know, of the time, they, they just, they get killed off or they die. But then um, a very, very, very small percentage don't, and they either become benign or they end up um, becoming cancerous. So I was imagining in that moment, um, just thinking about this monk's family member, just, oh yeah, this can, this can already be inside of me. And how would I face hearing a diagnosis? How would I... How would I deal with that right now? Just go to the doctor and say, oh, you have some anomaly in your blood work, let's do some tests, and, and that's it. 
we just before we started the puja, we heard we actually had three um, requests for chanting for our three people who just died. And so I, yeah, I, I just am bringing this up as a reflection for ourselves, like how is it that you can imagine um, contemplating death so that it becomes something that you might someday look forward to in order to better understand the Dhamma, in order to better understand your own suffering. One of the, um, another thing that happened just in that room that when we were, um, today when we were on alms round, was that Emily had, had asked if um, she could play us a song and I, monks, were not supposed to listen to songs. So I said yes. And uh, it was a song about the memorial that we were at for Daniel. Uh, and uh, a woman had wrote it, a family friend had wrote it, and it was just about the memorial and Daniel's life as what was essentially brought up in the memorial as a saintly person, sort of the saint of, of, uh, of Redwood Valley. And the refrain in the song was, uh, said, in the sky, in the sky, we all die. And then it ended with, life is good. The life is good part was a bit complicated for me because uh, life can be good, uh, but it's not always good. I mean, uh, somebody who, who ends up um, being a mass murderer, I mean, life is not good for them or the people that they end up killing. So it's not as simple. I was in Mendocino, uh, town of Mendocino with Tanyasa and his mom, and we, were, we looked into this store and and it was just kind of this gutted out store. It was really looked like abandoned. And, and, uh, and then I kind of, my focus went to the door window and it said, life is good. And then Tanyasa said, apparently not. And so it's, it's, we have to also balance out that like, there's good elements of life. There's wholesome things, there's beautiful things. Um, but there's also that which we want to restrain from and that which we want to be careful around. And, um, and then the very notion, sometimes when we say life is good, it's it sort of, it gets to a fundamental approach that the Buddha um, really had for us, which is, for most, it's hard to reconcile because of all of the, all of the messages we're given. It's just that life's good, creation's good, samsara's good. Um, it's good to be reborn again and again. It's good to experience desire and uh, to have a lot of sensual pleasures and to keep that going as long as we possibly can. Where the Buddha said, no, actually you don't want to be reborn and you want to end that cycle, which for most of us, um, again, there's that, what does that mean? Death. Right around the corner. So what is it, yeah, what, is it, what does it mean, ending that cycle? 
And so for some people encountering Buddhism, it's not, you know, that's not what it's about. I don't want to end the cycle, you know. I just want peace. I just want happiness. And that's, you know, that's okay. Uh, peace and happiness, those are good things. But the Buddha is, is teaching something radical. He's saying if you really put your life on the line, you know, similar to how he did, similar to how <clears throat> the monks and nuns uh, of his time did, and, and, uh, and those, um, also the fourfold assembly, the lay, lay women and men did as well. And have continued to do into this time, and Ajahn and Lumpur Cha doing the same. And for many of us attempting that, that similar approach, can we put our life on the line to end rebirth? And so as I say that to you, you know, what does that really bring up for you? Do you want to cover it over? Or do you want to go, I don't want to deal with that? Or, well, not for me, not in this lifetime. Or I don't even believe in lifetimes. But we're all going to die. And so it makes, you know, it, it, it really brings to mind how important things are in our life. You know, what is, what is really important. And so, you know, we, we can use death in that way to, to bring us to that sense of, of, uh, of knowing, like, yeah, there's, we don't know how many days we have left. We're not sure. And it's extremely important to, to keep recollecting that because then each moment becomes precious. And we're not so worried um, about the petty problems that we tend to carry around. Uh, or the how we want everything to kind of work out the way we want it to work. I was just talking to the monks about um, the monastics about chanting, and uh, when the chanting goes well, everyone can hear the chant leader. So the chant leader needs to be loud. Um, and I just kept saying, "Well, I can't." While we were chanting, I said, "I couldn't hear. Can't hear the chant leader." Not, not um, during the puja. Well, I, I couldn't hear the chant leader during the puja. But that's, that's my, it sounded like I was focusing on the chant leader, but I was actually focusing on everybody who was chanting. I was, oh, you know, can we all chant so quietly that we can hear the leader? But I don't think my point was really, uh, was heard. And that's, that's, that doesn't matter because we're all going to die. And chanting, since I've been here in the last 17 years, it's just been dukkha. I remember uh, I was leading chanting as a novice, maybe, and I think Lumpur rang the bell and he said, start over and raise your pitch. And that, that's been very difficult for 17 years. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm chanting as high as I can. He said, well, just, can you at least get us out of the gutter? And... Uh, yeah, I love Lumpur Pasana. Just he's just very straightforward, very straightforward, and he tell he will say it like it is, and there will be memories of that and how important it is. But at the same time, like for me to wish that 
there's going to be happiness when the chanting works out because it never will. Um, it's just how many of those things that do we have in our lives that it's like, if this happens, I'll be happy. If I don't have to live with this person, I'll be happy. If I get to live with this person, I'll be happy. If I don't have to live with myself, I'll be happy. Whatever it is. Go to this place, get this food, fall in love with this person. If my son or daughter behaves, or if they're happy. And on and on it goes. There's, we just make everything a condition. And so this, this, it's pretty amazing that the Buddha emphasized uh, this recollection so much. You know, he, some of you know how, you know, how he asked his monks, this very famous sutta that's spoken about um, quite a bit, where he asked the monks, you know, how often should you contemplate that you only have this much time left before you die in order to practice the Dhamma, understand the Dhamma? And so the, the monks are answering, you know, once a day, Lord, and twice a day. And, uh, and he keeps listening, and, and then the last two monks say, uh, you should contemplate death, contemplate that you have just this much time left in order to, before you die, to contemplate the Dhamma, and that is like, the first monk said, the, the time it takes to um, chew and swallow your food. And the last monk said, the time it takes to take an in-breath or an out-breath. Or he might have said both of those, both an in-breath and out-breath. That's pretty often. I mean, that's a lot. And the Buddha said, yeah, those are the two two times, that's how much we should contemplate that we have that much time left. And that's, that's, a, that's a very high bar. I mean, you have to actually have enough mindfulness to, to keep that going. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's something that's quite, um, it's an aspiration. Maybe for some, again, others might say, I, would, I don't want to think about death that much. But to contemplate that you have that much time left, how precious our lives are is, is really the, the key and what's so important. Because just like, just like Daniel, you know, there, there just wasn't much time left um, when he swallowed some food and then he couldn't breathe anymore. And in, especially in contemplating Daniel's life, uh, having known him and then hearing so much more about him from so many people he touched. I think there were a few hundred people at his Celebration of Life uh, memorial. And he touched so many people's lives, and I thought, wow, okay, a life well lived in 40 years. And so, just in asking yourselves about that, you know, have I lived my life well? And it's not a simple answer. It's like saying life is good. But it's something to question ourselves around, like what, is our prior what are our priorities? What's important for us? And only, only we can answer that for ourselves.
But you can see that just in that kind of like surmounting that or trying to understand that, that, that actually can bring up a sense of conviction, determination, even joy. Like we can actually think, oh yeah, what is, what's important to me? What can I put forward now? And how have I been making things that aren't important? Uh, the, the important things in my life? How have I been kind of focusing on what's not so helpful? Especially when we engage with like those things that we know get us in trouble and we, we keep going in that direction. So that's the tool that death gives us. It's the, it's the, um, or the tool we use, death, death for, that's the, um, the way we can bring it into our lives is to really kind of wake ourselves up and say, right, any moment. Because just speaking from my own experience, it's easy to, to just put it down and just want to ignore it. And that's when I was thinking about that cancer, like, yeah, I could really, that's possibly already inside. It's not like I, just because I haven't been diagnosed, I don't have it. It's not in there already. Stage four. So when we live that reality, then those kind of petty problems we have with a friend or some bickering we have or whatever it is, it just it can drop away so easily. And in fact, what arises is then an interest in healing a relationship, um, in being kind to another person, in being kind to ourselves. We have even more of a stronger conviction towards finding our own peace, finding joy in life, perhaps not, not beating ourselves over the head with our own aversion towards our, our thinking or our, our beliefs in our permanent cells and how wrong those permanent cells are. But it, it takes a certain amount of courage to do that, to, you know, death contemplation is really putting one's life on the line because if you really start to bring it in and contemplate your own end and understand it, that it can happen at any time. And to, to think about it, in certain ways, one of the ways that we contemplate death is to actually go through death experiences in our own minds. We can imagine our bodies decaying or getting sick. We, we can imagine our bodies, the parts of our bodies, or as elements, or going through the actual death process. And so, it's not a um, it's not a morose kind of fascination, um, but it's very, it's like a very palpable, real experience of how we view our own bodies, how we view our own existence. And um, so it's not coming from a neurosis or an obsession. It's coming from wisdom and an intention towards understanding.
So one of the things about it is it's, a, it's something we need to remind ourselves with. So as I was talking about uh, with uh, what Ajahn Titapanya does, he is for we, when we wash our bowls, Ajahn Kachana was, was giving a talk about the communist system that we have here in the monastery, we wash our bowls together, uh, which is different than how it's done in almost all other monasteries where people individually wash their bowls or the bowl of a senior monk. And uh, so we have to identify our spoons and our lids. Whose bowl is this? Whose spoon is that? And, and one gets quite adept at that. Uh, Ajantitapanya's spoon has the word maranang on it. And several uh, articles of his, yeah, his personal gear, as I mentioned before, smarnam. So you can bring that up. You know, if you're interested, you can put marnang all over the place, and it just it it keeps that reminder going, because the tendency through all of this that I'm describing is that it's not somewhere where we we te- we tend to want to go. We don't want to actually dwell on that. The tendency is get me away from that. I don't want to think about that at all. I got at least 30 or 40 years left, maybe. Or I have 20, or 10, maybe five. <clears throat> and so we push it away. We, we literally like, nope, out of my mind. And, uh, and we create that barrier around it. We don't let death in. And therefore, when people die, it's, it's shocking, it's terrible, it's horrible, it should never have happened, uh, especially to good people. Good people shouldn't die, because life's good. And um, yeah, we all die. For me, uh, I just want to say that uh, one of the things that I've experienced in my life around uh, death contemplation is that it doesn't, the, the seriousness with which I experience death occasionally is when I bring it up at night, for some reason it doesn't occur during the day. And my own personal experience around it um, is that uh, every now and again I'll, I'll bring it up and then it will become a complete reality for me that I'm living in a way that is pretending that I'm not actually going to die. Um, and it is so deeply felt, the knowledge that there is nothing I can do and that it is absolutely coming. Uh, it does strike you know, a certain amount of fear and like it's like it, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's it's it becomes so real um, that there's there's just no ignoring it. And so I find dealing with that at that point is is so incredible and instructional and helpful. Um, but just like that can come into the mind, there's also the pushing away that occurs and it can be almost automatic so that it just kind of disappears very quickly and distraction can form or whatever it is. And I lose that, that very 
very strong feeling around the end. So what I found is that, that that's, that's not something to run away from. That's something to really embrace and to work with. Um, because it's not, it's not, I don't know how common it is for, for all of you, but, um, but it's something that that's, I just find is so valuable and helpful when the reality of it is, is, is so deeply felt. And so again, like, this isn't uh, a message to, yeah, bring up death so you can scare the hell out of yourself. It's, it's a message to, like, bring up death so you can be so acquainted with it and clear with it that it doesn't shake you anymore. Like that earthquake, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, there, or, or you're, not, you're not shaken by it. You don't um, get struck by it in the heart. It doesn't move you. Because there can be complete acceptance of it. And so just imagining, imagining what Lumpur Sumedho said for yourself, you know. To actually imagine the ability to look forward to death, to look forward to the process of dying. Um, <clears throat> just imagining that you have that capacity to feel the same way. And, and if it's possible, you know, to, to do what Lumpur Shah did and, and just make it very important and put your life on the line. Because ultimately what can happen is, is a complete letting go. So the, the attachments fall away. Um, because this is, this body of ours, this is what we tend to be so incredibly attached to and want to preserve in every way. And, um, keep from danger, hold on to. And ultimately that's what keeps us going in samsara. That's what keeps us reborn. Over and over. So these are um, some words for reflection, and uh, you know, this is a, a bit of a challenge, encouragement to do something that is is difficult to do, um, but to also try and experiment with it and see if um, if you haven't already been working with death contemplation that you you try to bring it in your life thinking about it and um, see if it helps, see if it, it uh, is a wholesome thing to do um, and encourages you to live life more deeply and, um, and more interested in the, the Dhamma and understanding uh, so that you have a, an intent to, uh, to end your, your own dis-ease your own dukkha. <clears throat>